You have stepped in the door of imagination and clarification. You've stepped in to the Question Zone. And now for the Question Zone on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Welcome your hosts, the Cowboy Apologist, Curtis Evelo and Dr. Brian Chilton. Zone. It's designed to open up conversation and give biblical answers. My full intent is to ask the questions you may have to the topics that are relevant to the day, to the day and age we live, and giving Brian and I an opportunity to show you how to look biblically at the culture and how to live that out. Here we go. Let's jump and go. Brian, we have some uh, housekeeping to be made up and some exciting news and just kind of a, a good all-around day today. You want to jump in? Yeah, so we actually, we had kind of a, a challenge over the past uh, couple of weeks, uh, actually especially last week. We uh, had two episodes back-to-back and uh, tried to publish them through the website as we have been doing for several seasons now. And unfortunately, the website would not upload the the podcast. Uh, the, the, we spent I spent probably five hours trying to get this thing to work. Um, contacted the the hosting service uh, through which the the website flows. Um, they couldn't seem to find any resolution to the problem. Uh, there was a back doorway that we had been able to uh, get the podcast on there. Well, the plug-in used to do that. Apparently, it's malfunctioning. So every possible way of uploading the podcast um, and to the different podcast to the website and then flowing over to the different podcasting apps just would not work. Uh, but I remember it just so happened. I think it was actually a year or two ago. Uh, Curtis was messing around with, uh, with an app called Spotify and said, hey, by the way, this might be an avenue for us to look at. Well, lo and behold, God knew what he was doing. Uh, we started looking at that, and uh, now the podcast, the recorded audio podcast, uh, is now flowing through Spotify. And outside of one or two, uh, tune in and Stitcher, we're still working to get the the podcast back on Stitcher and um, on and tune in. But outside of that, we're st- we're back on every single podcasting app that we were on before, with the addition of three new outlets that we weren't on before. As, uh, speaking of Amazon podcasts, apparently Amazon has a podcasting feature. We're now on Amazon, and then. Uh, Pocket Radio or Pocket Cast, something like that, and then Overcast. We're supposed to be on there as well. So uh, several new podcasting funk, uh, apps that we weren't on before uh, that we're now going to be featured on. So we actually have expanded uh, the the reach. But the only problem is, for those of you who might have been listening to the podcast. 
there's no way we could update and uh, update you with an additional podcast because we can't get anything on there. Uh, but what we did do is we posted uh, a new logo on the old podcast, giving you instructions to look for Bellator Christie podcast. Now the new one, the one with the updated episodes, it's going to be Bellator Christie podcast. No V. Don't put the V in front of it. Just look up Bellator Christie podcast, and you'll find the new updated version of of the podcast. And we'll flow out. We'll produce. Uh, future podcasts, this one, and future podcasts uh, through the Spotify account, which will flow over into all of these different podcasting um, apps. Now, with that said, one of the reasons we went with the hosting service we did was to get the additional uh, data package that we needed. So the question is, will we remain on the same hosting platform or not? That is to be determined. Uh, so we may be making a change uh, because I was speaking with a professional, uh, good friends of ours, uh, who works in IT, and they said that, um, not, not trying to badmouth the hosting platform we're on, but they had said that they have known there to be some problems with that. So we may be looking at a different hosting platform coming up in the year ahead. Be much in prayer for us as we make these difficult decisions. Listen, I studied theology, church history, apologetics, biblical studies, I wish I had gone back and studied a little more IT technology. Uh, it may have been beneficial if I had studied computer science a little bit more. So all of this is a work in progress, uh, kind of learning as we go. But if you are a professional, we've got some friends in IT, but if you have any suggestions, by all means, reach out to us and uh, let us know. So the podcast is continuing. We didn't even know there for a moment. I'll be honest, I was panicking. I told Curtis... By text, I said, man, I don't even know if we can continue the podcast now the way this thing is going. Uh, by God's grace, he provided an open door, and uh, we are able to uh, continue the podcast as uh, as God gives us the ability to do so. But now, on that note, Curtis, I want to say something else right quick. It's not related to the podcast, but you and I have a favorite professional wrestler. Something special happened with this guy. And if you don't recognize the theme music, then we'll just kind of have to pray for you. This is one of the greatest professional wrestlers in all of history. And of course, we're talking about the immortal icon, Hulk Hogan. He gave his heart and life to Jesus and was baptized in Tampa, Florida uh, this past weekend. And it was even reported on some major news outlets but he said of all the things that he's accomplished in his life, one of the most important things was giving his heart and life to Jesus. And so we can now say, I believe that the Hulkster, Terry Valia, is going to say to the devil himself, what you going to do, brother, when the kingdom of God and Hulkamania run wild on you? <laughs> story i mean uh yeah you know you always wonder they make comments and they say things as uh as celebrities as as uh as famous people they make comments um just trying to uh how could you say relate to some 
and, and try to say, you know, well, we, we give this all to God or we thank God for this or what have you. And when, when these kind of things happen, um, now you know um, that God's been working on his heart and uh, <laughs> uh, what a great thing. It's pretty awesome. Pretty cool to see. Can you imagine? I was thinking about this afternoon. You know, wouldn't it be cool if we got to heaven? They set up a wrestling ring and had a tag team match between with Hulk Hogan and Samson <laughs> against a couple of others. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness! Some of the stuff we think of. What a great thing! It's a uh, dangerous thing to be in this yeah. mind of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's jump into the the QZ four, the question zone four. Um, we have one question. I broke it into two parts for us. Um, that came from a from a listener, um, and and so I'm just going to go ahead and and uh, do the first one as one A, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read his exact question. So um, I'm going to go here, and it says, quote, Read Isaiah 7.14. Does that sound like the life of Jesus? Where's the death by crucifixion to take on the sins of mankind? Oh, our old buddy and friend Bob the skeptic. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's go and read Isaiah 7.14. This was in a response uh uh, in a response to an um, article written by uh, Dr. David Sloan, uh, Daniel Sloan, excuse me, uh, on on the website, I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Daniel, I think he may have responded to Bob's um, uh, response as well. So uh, that he may have left okay. a comment to that. So uh, I haven't had a chance to look at it just yet, but I do think that there was a response given. But let me go ahead and just not having read uh, the, the, the further conversation, let's go ahead and read the passage. It says, uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, I'm going to read, by the time he learns to reject what is bad and, and choose what is good, he'll be eating curds and honey. And so this is an example of what's called a double fulfillment, a dual fulfillment of Scripture. On the one hand, this was fulfilled by um, Ahaz, King Ahaz, but there are elements that couldn't be fulfilled by Ahaz, such as a virgin, uh, the Hebrew word is Alma, which speaks of a young woman, uh, who is uh, of who is unmarried, and so in this culture and time, it would have been assumed and would have reflected a woman who was in fact a virgin. So, in one sense, there's an aspect of this prophecy that was fulfilled by King Ahaz, but there's a miraculous uh, section that also is fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Son of God, who is Christ. Uh, so there is that dual fulfillment going on in this passage of Scripture. Now, to his accusation of saying that it doesn't mention uh, all the aspects of Jesus' life, prophecy is not gauged uh, by whether or not it gives us every element or every aspect of um, the thing that's being prophesied. I mean, for instance, Daniel give certain prophecies about nations that were, would come. Isaiah does the same thing for nations that would come. 
Jeremiah does the same thing about invading nations, but they don't give us every single minute detail. They give us the big picture. So Isaiah 7, 14 is indeed speaking to the life of Jesus, the miraculous birth of Jesus, the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas. It does mention that, but it's absurd for us to think that it has to describe every element of Jesus's life for it to be messianic in nature. Um, to me, that's just this. No offense to our friend, but to me, that's just a little far fetched to make that type of accusation. So he goes on on that same same part of the question one a. Um, we already kind of covered a little bit of the, the miraculous birth. Um, a girl, you could say. Um, but let's go into this first question just a little deeper. He says, there is no miraculous birth either. A girl at that moment who it, who was a virgin would conceive, then give birth, is no miracle. <laughs> well, see, I don't know if he's speaking about the, the birth of Jesus or if he's speaking about what he sees in this passage of Scripture. It, let, let's just cover both, just to, just to cover a basis. So if he's talking about the passage of Scripture, again, the Hebrew word is Alma, uh, which is speaking of a woman who is unmarried, and 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 again, uh, by deduction, is, is, is a virgin, has never had marital relations. And so that's what's being assumed, that's what's being implied, and that's, what's, that's what the word is used for. By the way, in the Greek Septuagint, when this passage is translated before the time of Christ, the word parthenos is used, and that means more explicitly a virgin. A virgin would conceive. So again, this, this is a recognized messianic prophecy. If he's speaking of the life of Jesus, then he's, then he's really taking the, the line of thinking as David Hume does who has a circular argument. He, he goes to suggest that um, we can't prove miracles exist because miracles don't exist. So it's, it's really not proving anything. He's, he's basically saying there, there's no such thing as miracles, therefore miracles can't exist and miracles can't be proven because miracles don't exist. And that's what David Hume and the human, humanism, humanism is all about. It makes it the claim that historically you can't prove miracles because, in his assumption, miracles don't exist. So there's a great deal of circular reasoning in that argumentation. So there again, if he's arguing that virgin births don't happen, well, he's making an assumption there. But a little lesson in biology, there is such a thing that happens in nature called parthenogenesis that happens. Now, the thing is, is it's never been documented in human beings um, per se, but it's been documented in sharks, frogs, certain fish. Parthenos, again, means uh, virgin. Uh, Genesis means beginning. So it essentially means a virgin birth. There are some species of animals where there's no male around, where the female can somehow or another uh, produce offspring. Um, it's very rare, but it has been documented throughout history as happening in the natural world. So if God can do that with nature, it's a slice of cake, it's a piece of cake for him to be able to bring his own son, uh, the, the Lagos from eternity, 
uh, in this manner. Uh, but again, if you're speaking of the Old Testament, the word Alma it references uh, a woman, a virgin woman. Uh, if you were referencing Jesus, then biologically, uh, parthenogenesis happens, has happened to nature. So if God can create all the heavens and the universe uh, from nothing in a moment of time, then a virgin birth is a, is a piece of cake for him. Mm. Oh, I would say the very beginning proves the miracle that even even atheists believe that the miracle happened in the beginning. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So anyway, one B. Let's go to the B part of this um, question. Um, it says, so what other fulfilled prophecies or are or have been proven and are backed by historical writings? Well, there are many. In fact, uh, I think we had a series on Messianic prophecies. What was it, last season, I believe, if I'm I not was, mistaken? Yeah, I was just going to say we've kind of covered that one. Um, but one of my go-to prophecies would be Isaiah 53. Uh, that gives you all the details of the life of Jesus. I mean, that that's a very unique mm -hmm. prophecy. And it's, it says, I'm, I'm going to just kind of read a few passages here. This was recognized very early on as being messianic. And, but the problem is there are certain elements of this, this prophecy that people didn't know what to do with earlier on. Excuse me, before the time of Christ. So, for instance, it uses messianic terminology. For whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like him, a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. That is a messianic terminology. Branch, root, the root of Jesse, um, the, the branch of David. That's messianic terminology. It says in verse 2, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering, this is part of the servant of the Lord motif, which is also messianic. Um, said he, he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. The Son of God carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquity, Punishment for our peace was upon him, and we are healed by his wounds, or by his stripes we are healed. And um, it goes on in verse 7, talks about him being oppressed. Um, one of the amazing things here, notice in verse 9, he was assigned a grave with a wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death, the borrowed tomb. Remember Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in a borrowed tomb. Um because he had done no violence and had not spoken him. But here it gets really weird in verse 10. So he's assigned a grave. He's, he's dead. The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. First part of verse 10. But then look what it says. But when you make him a guilt offering, he's assigned a, he's assigned a place in a grave. He's, he's dead. He will see his seed and he will prolong his days. There were many ancient Jewish rabbis that racked their brains over that thinking, what does that mean? How is that possible? It's clear that the man's dead. 
but he will see his seed, he will prolong his days. By his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, after his death, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Now it was by being assigned a place in the grave by death that that happened. But therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil, because he willingly... This is weird. He willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. The man bore the sins of the people, was crushed, placed in a grave, yet his days were prolonged. He saw light and was given the mighty as a spoil. How in the world is that possible? Well, God answered that with the resurrection of Jesus. This is this is an amazing prophecy. Dead Sea Scrolls prove that this was in Isaiah long before Jesus ever came on the scene. This is just an amazing, one of my favorite Messianic prophecies, and it's just absolutely amazing. If you're looking for something that gives the core details of Jesus' life in one prophecy, then this is it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say... I, I agree. Uh, Isaiah 53 is is one of my favorites, but um, I have one that is my go-to that I that I just think um, parallels very well with Isaiah, which is uh, Psalm 22. Oh yeah, and it starts in verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make my they make mouth at me, uh, they wag their hands, and they say he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Mm. And it goes on to talk about how uh, they divided his garments among them. Um, they surround him. Um, it, it's it's it, there's some amazing specific prophetic things that happen at the cross that play out right there. They divided the their gar his garments among them. That's what they did. Now. It just it blows you away when when you start looking at some of that stuff. Well, and, and you're right, you're right, Curtis. I mean, because twenty two, twenty three, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, twenty four is also messianic. Um, mm -hmm. So from so from from suffering to praise, you go twenty two, twenty three. Talk about the good shepherd, uh, and then I believe twenty four. You see the King of Glory. So you have a good shepherd, you have the, him being crushed, and I believe, is it 22 where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or um, maybe verse 2, yeah. verse 1 or 2. But anyhow, yeah, yeah, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then you turn around to verse 24, I mean, uh, Psalm 24, and then see the King of Glory. Uh so there again, that, that's that same theme we find. Uh, servant of the Lord coming, the shepherd of the people, uh, crushed and then redeemed, 
and glorified in an amazing manner. Very good. Amazing stuff. Well, that's a deep subject. Tis the season. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly what I was going to say. But tis the season, it is Christmas time. And so I feel it, I feel it as a need to uh, dig in some of the seasonal uh, celebrations and uh, some Christmas questions that we may have. So let me go on to the first of that question, which is question number two, Christmas. How did the tree and the lights or lighting of the tree become part of our modern celebration? Excellent question. And I I was going back to some of the articles I had written on this topic earlier. Um, Yes, it is true that some pagan cultures um, had trees they worshipped. I come to find out through ancestry that I'm 15 20% 20% Scandinavian, so have Norse blood, didn't even know it. So the oaks of Mamre, the oaks of, they had an oak of Thor, uh, oak of Thor that they used to, to worship as being Thor's own oak tree and uh, back in the day. So th- there were in all, uh, many different cultures, I'm not going to say all, many different cultures association with trees. But that doesn't mean that the Christmas tree is necessarily pagan because Trees in Scripture uh, also have a symbolic value, especially evergreens. Now, Curtis, I love you have a phrase. If a, if an article an article uh, maintains uh, viewership, uh, if if people continue mm-hmm. coming to it, you call it evergreen. And I and that's that's I love that phrase. The Bible does the same thing. We talk about the cypress trees. We talk about evergreens. Uh, there's various passages of scripture we could reference on that note, um, but it has that symbol of uh, maintaining its green color. Green is also a symbol of eternity for that very reason. Um, they maintain their their needles. They maintain their unlike the the deciduous trees around here that lose their leaves and become barren. Evergreens maintain that green color year round. So. In a sense, it's a symbol of eternity, the eternity we have in God, in Christ. Uh, lights, light is a common symbol of life, hope, uh, the presence of God. If you remember Moses when he went on Mount Sinai, up on top of Mount Sinai, and God came down, he came down to the people and his face was glowing because he'd been in the presence of God. Uh, light is a symbol of God's love, grace, and life. Um, John 1, uh, Jesus was the light. Uh, the light overcame the darkness. Uh, though he was among his own, the, his own re- received him not, the Bible says. Uh, but he was the light of the world. Uh, so these symbols have deep impact in... Um, in, in throughout the Gospels or throughout the Bible. And it's amazing because symbols seem to have a way of communicating with us in ways that other things don't. So going back to the question, according to the Cyclopedia Britannica, uh, the use of evergreens, wreaths, and garlands uh, to symbolize eternal life was a custom of many different cultures, including Hebrews, Chinese, and Egyptians. 
but the Christmas tree came about primarily through Germanic people who would celebrate the winter festival by honoring the pagan god Odin. Uh, but over time, uh, Germans, in, especially Moravians who came to America, I have some ancestry along with those Moravians as well, uh, they, they carried on a tradition where uh, they would have an um, evergreen in their house. Legend states that Boniface... Uh, in the 700, well, Pope Gregory was a missionary to the Germans in the early 700s. Boniface was an ardent defender of Christianity, sought to destroy paganism in any way possible. Uh, he came and, and uh, chopped down an oak tree devoted to Thor. Um, Boniface immediately took an axe to it, but then uh, afterward, legend states that Boniface taught that the evergreen, not the oak, the evergreen served as a symbol that the old pagan ways had died and was renewed in the Christian faith, uh, or had renewed in the Christian faith. One tradition points the Christian practice of placing trees in the home to Martin Luther, of all people. Um, and so Luther saw the evergreen as tree as symbolic because it was maintained its, its uh, needles and it pointed to heaven. It, he believed that it served as a symbol of God's eternal grace pointing to heaven. And then through that, through Moravians and through not only just Moravians, but other Germanic people who came to the United States, uh, they continued this tradition by placing the evergreen tree in their homes. They would also place lights on it, but this was before electricity. So they would have candles and light the candles. Man, that's a fire hazard waiting to happen. Uh <laughs> But they would, they would, they would attach these candles uh, to the to the trees and would light them up that way. Thank the Lord that today we have art, you know, electricity and artificial lights to put on our trees. Uh, but that's really the origin of this. Yes, there was some ties to um, paganism, but actually Boniface uh, incorporated the Christian, the evergreen tree, into uh, Christian tradition by saying that this is a symbol. Of our life with Christ, the old ways have died. The new ways have come in Christ through this evergreen tree that remains green all year long. So, I, I don't think that it's a pagan ritual. In fact, I love Christmas trees. To be honest with you, it's, it's amazing when the rest of the house is dark and you have a Christmas tree up and lit up. Just how it just shines all throughout the house. Yeah, we, we love that, too. Um, so, the old Santa Claus, <laughs> the old Saint Nick. <laughs> what can we learn from the real Saint Nicholas? I loved how you said that. You kind of sound like Chevy Chase on, uh, on one of those uh, vacation movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of where I got it from. <laughs> old Mississippi, the old man. <laughs> So what, what can we learn from the real St. Nicholas? So St. Nicholas was a real person. Uh, he was a saint, uh, Bishop of Myra, back in the 300s. In fact, it's believed that, um, well, in fact, St. Santa Claus comes from St. Nick. You know, Santa means saint. Claus is a, is a nickname for Nicholas. So Santa Claus means St. Claus, which 
relates to St. Nicholas. <laughs> um, <laughs> so even Santa Claus has its origin with St. Nicholas. Uh, St. Nicholas was born in the 3rd century A.D. in a village called uh, named Patera, which is on the southern coast of Turkey. Uh, ter- ancient Turkey was a Christianized nation. It's Islamic now. But um, th- there's probably a treasure cove of many early Christian writings that may still be in Turkey today because of the rich history that it had. Uh, Nicholas lost both of, both of his parents at an early age due to an epidemic in his area. Uh, nonetheless, Nicholas's parents has taught him to be a devoted Christian during their brief time with him. Uh, he grew up fairly wealthy. Uh, he grew up in, in a prominent home. Uh, but Nicholas decided to sell most of what he had and give it and share it with those in need. Now, one tradition states that Nicholas helped a man and his three daughters. Now, back in these days, uh, before you could uh, marry off your daughter, you had to pay a dowry. Um, but the man did not have enough money to pay off a dowry. And so if he couldn't pay off a dowry for his daughters to be married, the end result was that they had a life of destitution after he died. Uh, they would have to live lives as prostitutes or beggars in the streets um, because they couldn't be married off. Um, but the better the dowry a person had, the better, uh, the better type of uh, prospects that they could draw. So he had enough money for probably one daughter, but not for all of them, and he was just distraught not knowing what to do. Well, Nicholas, St. Nicholas, who was a man of means, uh, noticed that they hung these stockings uh, by the window. And so it was found that one day, as Nicholas was walking by uh, the window, he uh, dumped a big bag of gold in one of the stockings enough to pay the dowry for one of the daughters. Well, this man was overjoyed because he didn't really, you know, he, he, was, he realized it was enough to pay a dowry, but who in the world did it? Well, the second night, Nicholas came by and announced to the man and dropped a bag of gold in the second stocking for the second daughter. Well, the third, di- the third time this happened, the man was hid away and caught Nicholas and thanked him endlessly for this and, and asked him, what can I do? And Nicholas says, well, we'll keep it a secret. Don't let this, don't spread the word. But he had enough money. Well, that didn't work. The man spread the news about Nicholas's generosity and, you know, it became a, a, a major story in that time. But St. Nicholas was known throughout the land for his love and charity. He was also known as a man of great, unrelenting faith. In fact, it's the, there's a legend that states that, uh, well, let, let's just go back. At the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325, there was a great problem emerging in the church. There was a guy by the name of Arius who was a heretic. Uh, he was claiming that uh, Christ was just a mere man, uh, the first creation of God, but he wasn't divine. We had a guy by the name of Athanasius. Uh, who adamantly defended uh, the divinity of Jesus. He was a short, dark-skinned man, and his adversaries called him the the Black Dwarf uh, because he was a short stature and dark skin. But he was a mighty man of God. That's what they called him. That's honest to goodness what they called him. (laughs) But, uh, But he was a mighty man of God. Well, Nicholas wholeheartedly had the back of Athanasius, and it's said that when one person, one of the people, the Arians, 
was uh, was saying something, saying that Jesus wasn't divine. Well, it said that uh, Nicholas cold-cocked the man and had to be escorted out, and many people believe that's why in some records Nicholas wasn't listed <laughs> as the, one of the official elders of uh, the Council of Nicaea. He was later added to some records later on. But uh, anyhow, uh, that's the story of St. Nicholas. I'll be honest, I love the story of St. Nicholas of Myra. He, he is, he is a... <laughs> He would be an interesting man to meet, I think. Yeah, got a rowdy bunch. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> he was the ancient Hulk Hogan. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh. Uh, oh, the jokes could go on. So, um, question four. Um, Christ's birth. December 25th, and the Christmas story. How do they all get tied together? Well, there's there are problems with December 25th being the actual birth date of Jesus because there are certain things in the gospel stories that seem to suggest that his birth would have been somewhere in August, uh, not August, somewhere in autumn or fall of the year. And many people have suggested... And quite convincingly, I believe that Jesus' birth may have been around September 11th, uh, which would have been around the Feast of the Trumpets uh, at, in, in that time frame. Because we're talking about him being born anywhere between 4 to 6 B.C. Uh, so it, there's not a year zero on the calendar. So it went from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Uh, so there, it may have been a few years off from from it being right at one but uh, four to six bc and there's some historical things having to do with the census being taken other areas and i i won't bore you with all the details on that but there, there are just certain reasons for believing that it was from four to six bc but that's not to say that there's not still some connection to jesus's birth on december 25th in fact december 25th was uh, picked as uh, a uh, day to celebrate Jesus's birth very early in the church, fairly early in the church, uh, at least by th- the third or fourth century, if memory serves around that area. Um, so we look at a few clues. First of all, we see the details of Jesus's birth. They do point to an autumn birthday. In Luke's account of Jesus's birth, he said that when Jesus was born in Luke 2, 8, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock at night. And that would be something they would do in the autumn of the year. Um, sheep were used for temple sacrifices in Jerusalem that were often kept in Bethlehem. So there are problems there with a the December 25th date. There's a second clue. There's details about the star of Bethlehem and the Magi's appearance. Now, this may disappoint some people, but when you see nativity scenes, it's inaccurate to have the wise men there because they didn't come until a couple of years later. Uh, they came a couple of years after Jesus was born, so Jesus was a probably a toddler by the time they came around. Um, so the star of Bethlehem led the Magi, who were astrologers, to this area at a certain time. And there are reasons for believing that it may have been around December 25th that the Magi appeared 
to Jesus uh, and to the Holy Family. Uh, so there's also details from the astrological data in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5, and you can go there and read that. That's probably pointing to some constellations going on, and, and God is telling a story through those constellations about uh, the beast, uh, the dragon chasing after the woman with child, and uh, so on and so forth. But uh, Joseph Drum, uh, Dumond excuse me, argues that Revelation 12 describes a constellation that took place at a certain time in history. And uh, if that, according to the Stellarium Astronomy Software Database, the astrological alignment was visible from Bethlehem on the evening of Wednesday, September 11, 3 BC. And so it uh, could mean that... Uh, that it was, if it is a constellation, it could mean that it happened then, and it may have come back around two years later on December twenty fifth. Uh, so, all that being said, Feast of Trumpets would have been around this time, around early September. The Feast of Trumpets called for a national repentance and also marked the start of a new agricultural year. So, if you look at what God has done, you know the pouring out of the Spirit happened at. Pentecost. We have the sacrifice of Jesus happening around the time of Passover. Uh, there are other things that happen in the life of Jesus. So if, if that pattern continues, even with the birth of Jesus, it's very possible that Jesus could have been born around September 11th. But having said that, there's also an early tradition that states that the angel may have appeared to Mary around December 25th as well. So there are some connections with December 25th. Is it the birth date of Jesus? Well, maybe not. But are there connections to December 25th with the birth story of Jesus in the, tiv in the nativity? Yeah, there is. So, or there are. So there, even though it may not be exactly the date of Jesus' birth, there are a lot of connections to December 25th. So um, just real quickly, I, I'm looking back at an article I wrote many years ago on this. So uh, the blast from the shofar at the Feast of Trumpets would announce the beginning of a new feast. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would follow the Feast of the Trumpets. So wouldn't that be just like God to have the new High Holy Priest born around the time of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year for the Israelite. It's the day when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and offered sacrifices for the sins of the nation. Sukkot was also one of Israel's primary holidays. It recalls Israel's wilderness wanderings and God-saving action that brought them out of bondage and into salvation. Um, so again, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the trumpets, calls for repentance. Uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, seeks redemption. And Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrates the fulfillment of God's redemption. So isn't, wouldn't it be just like God to incorporate all these different festivals in with the life of Jesus? Mm-hmm. The, yeah, there's a lot going on right there in that uh, time period. Um, but we have some scripture that kind of tell us that, hey, um, uh, what name that we're going to have uh, given 
to the new Christ child, um, and uh, that name is called Emmanuel, God with us, um, God tabernacling with us. The Feast of Sukkot is uh, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, which then, um, why wouldn't uh, God come when people are expecting to uh, remember what God has done, also know that they are uh, planning to uh, meet with God. That's when God would meet with them um, or would have met with them. Um, and so all of those things together, why wouldn't it be, right? I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. So it, it just makes sense to me. Um, I mean, because I went back and forth. I even looked at it. I wrote an article that, that could defend the possible December 25th date. But, you know, looking at it, I, I think September 11th really matches well with the Feast of Tabernacles, Yom Kippur. Again, Pentecost is associated with Jesus. It's the pouring out of the Spirit. Passover is associated with Jesus. That's the sacrifice of the Lamb. Again, it just sounds like if you follow the pattern of what God's been doing in the life of Jesus, it only makes sense. And there again, though, December 25th may have been the time when the Magi visited Jesus, two years after the fact. And it may have also been around the time when the angel appeared to Mary, because again, the timeline that would fit even with the September 11th date. So there is every good reason for celebrating Christmas December 25th, even if it's not necessarily the actual birth date of Jesus. Yep. I have no problem with it because guess Me what? Either. The whole world hears. And that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so, number five, here, here's the, here's kind of comes into that. Are Christians evangelizing by just celebrating the holiday? Yeah, I think so. I think in a, in a way we are because as long as we keep the main thing the main thing, um, you know, it's easy for us to get distracted and, and, and focus on so many other different things. But if, if we, by our actions, by our lives, now a lot of times people get mean around the holidays. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Um, I, I want to name drop a guy I spoke with the other day. Uh, good man of God. I hope he doesn't mind me using his name. His name's Rob Sharpa. Just a wonderful man of God. He told me that he and his family, that they don't necessarily do a lot in gift giving, but they spend the day playing games, enjoying each other's fellowship, you know, focus, on, focus on Christ and focus on you know, being together. And, you know, I've really thought about that ever since he, ever since he said that, and I think there's something to that because we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves by um, trying to find the perfect gift, trying to, to find the, the, the perfect thing to do. Uh, I think we would probably be better off. I mean, there's nothing wrong with giving gifts, and, and I, I'm not saying there is. And I don't, I'm not, he, he wasn't either. But I think if we put more right. emphasis on gifts and we put more emphasis on all these different things we do, we miss the whole point of the Christmas story God came to share his love with us. God came to save us. And this is a perfect time for us as he tabernacled with us 
it's a perfect time for us to tabernacle with our loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. The gift of God. Absolutely. So, uh, number six, this came from, this came from my, uh, my family. Um, I kind of poked around and I asked some questions and I said, Hey, what, what, uh, what questions would you have for Brian and I, uh, for this next one? And I kind of had some fun with it and there was, there were some that we sorted through, but here's one. Is there any harm in kids believing in Santa? That's an excellent question, Curtis. And I'll be honest, I was wrestling when my son was born. And given the doubts I went through in life, that was a question I really struggled with. Uh, and that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. I really qu- <laughs> I really debated about whether to have it on the podcast because I had struggled with it so much. But thinking about it, I don't, I don't think there's any harm in it as long as we do it in the appropriate way. Uh, I, I don't think that necessarily, if if we play, if we use it as kind of like a game that we play, um, then then I don't think there's any harm in that. If we elevate the Santa story over the love and devotion we have for Jesus, or over the Christmas story then that could be a, a big problem that we have. But, you know, I remember when my son, when I told my son, my son is, has an inquisitive mind, and it was a few years ago, uh, he's four, he's a teenager now, but it was I think it was before he became a teenager, and he just sat down and asked me point blank. He said, Dad, Dad tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but see, being, being being in church history, I could say, son, there is a St. Nicholas. And I told him the story of St. Nicholas of Myra. So there is technically a Santa Claus, a St. Nicholas of Myra. I told him the story of St. Nicholas of Myra and what he did and who he was. Now, I told him the game, the legends, the traditions that's associated with him and told him what's true, what's not true. And I said, you know, really, if you think about it, in the spirit of St. Nicholas, we as parents often give our children gifts because St. Nicholas is the patron saint of children because he loved children. He gave many gifts to children in Myra and Roundabout. So it's in the spirit of St. Nicholas that we carry on this tradition. So I think it's, it depends on how you go about doing it. And when the time comes that they want to know the facts, I think if you shape it, again, knowing church history helped me out a lot here. If you shape the story around the actual St. Nicholas and, and tell them the real genuine story and say, and really that's where this tradition started, you know, doing it in the spirit of St. Nicholas. I think it can ease that over. So to answer the question, excuse me, I don't think there's any harm Hmm. as long as we do it in an appropriate fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, and and so so here's, I have it separated out on a separate question, but so, so let's just add this one to that same question because you kind of already answered it, but I want to I want to put it out there for our listeners to understand that how the questions came about. It's 
Are Christian parents lying and deceiving their children by portraying the myth of Santa? Now, let me tell you where this question came from, because there's a lot of talk on social medias, the, 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 all of the, all of the groups um, that um, my wife could be involved with or without being involved with, what have you, it says that there's, runs the gamut of all of these things. And there's people that say um, we're being horrible by lying to our children um, and it's, you know, it's a myth, you're lying to your child, you're doing this, you're doing that. And I think your answer was great but how can we kind of maybe um, dive into this part of the question just a little more? I think I think one of the most revolutionary things for me is learning the actual story of the historic Saint Nicholas of Myra, because I'm just going to be honest that made it a heck of a lot easier for me when the time came to actually tell my son, <laughs> disclose the the facts to my son. I think by knowing the genuine story of St. Nicholas, you can we can actually use that as a means to discuss the importance of generosity and caring for those in need. Um, if we were to, if we're doing this in the spirit of St. Nicholas, who did care for the children and the oppressed in his time. I mean, he himself was an orphan, so he knew what it was like not to have parents. And so he took it upon himself to help those underprivileged kids in his in his area. Uh, if we go about it in that manner, saying that we're doing it in the spirit of Saint Nicholas, I don't think that we're lying and deceiving our children. I mean, l- listen, w- we should be able to be to be wise enough to be able to draw the line between a game that we play. And being deceptive, I mean, there, there's, there's a world of difference. Uh, it's sure. like Elf on a Shelf. I mean, it's a little sure. game we play, and so, and that's the way I kind of worded it with my son. You know, you know, the funny thing is, once I told my son the truth of the spirit of Saint Nicholas and uh, and and that, uh, we moved the following year, and we had an Elf on a Shelf. I cannot find that stinking Elf anywhere. I don't know if he. <laughs> It's like he hightailed it. And, I, mean, I don't know. We had a little elf in the shelf that we played with my son. You know, where we moved him in different locations. And, you know, we all enjoyed it. But I don't know where that thing went. But, uh, but again, I think it's all in the manner and how you do it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And that's kind of what my wife and I were talking about is... is uh, some of these people take it way too far to the end, um, to one end, missing the whole point. And it's about the joy and about the opportunity to use these figures or names or, or, or things that we would typically have a conversation with, you know, within the world, right? Within our, within the culture that we can then take that and we can actually show examples of, of how to be, how, you know, like you said, the real Saint Nicholas. You know, um, wow, what an opportunity to to give our children some truth, um, and and show them how 
uh, generosity and uh, living in amongst their community um, is played out, is, is actually walked out in front of us. It, it was written in history. Here it is. Here, here's our opportunity to do this. I think, I don't know. To me, it's, um, it's kind of like, you know, you can't listen to that rock music, you know. It ain't Christian. Well, I, I think that all of I think that Christians need to lighten up. I'll be honest with you, I, because and that and that's one of the reasons I think one working with some of the wonderful folks I, I have in hospice. Hospice is tough work, so you've got to have a time to have fun with each other uh, to lighten the mood. Because if if you're right. serious all the time in that line of work, it'll you'll drive yourself crazy, and so. The same thing is true, for, I think, for us as Christians. I think there's a time that we need to stop taking ourselves so seriously and, and to be able to lighten yeah. up and enjoy life. I mean, I'm with you, Curtis. I mean, I told <laughs> my dissertation chair, good friend, Leo Purser, Dr. Leo Purser, I said, you know, God has used a song to bless <laughs> my wife and I. And I said, it's not a Christian song. It's a journey the Don't Stop Believing song. It's like every time we hear that song, something good happens. So that's almost like <laughs> we're wanting them to play the song. Uh, like your key points of our lives, we'll be driving down the road, and here the song comes on, and, we, and it's just gotten to be almost to the point that we're expecting it. Now, not the the lyrics per se, but the chorus, you know, Don't Stop Believing, Keep Pressing On. So... Um, yeah, I think there's a point in time right. that we, we as Christians do. We need, we need to lighten well, up and be able to enjoy things. Yeah. And you know what's funny is it's, it's just a stepping stone to be able to have a conversation with somebody. Um, it, it, I mean, you had said at one time before in one of our podcasts, we were actually um, examining some, some questions and things, and you stated... All truth is God's truth. No matter how we get it, no matter how we receive it or how it's found, it's if it's true, it's God's truth. Use it for that. that Absolutely. It's a powerful statement you made. Well, and I, I stole it from someone else, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, nobody knows who said it first, so that's okay. <laughs> oh, excuse me, I borrowed it. I borrowed it from someone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of like, you know, borrowing with, with the intent to keep it. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, so... Let's just go to here, number number eight, um, jumping right into it. But, so I, I, I thought of this question, something happened significantly in the world for the world to start counting time. Um, and so now we have a, a calendar, you know, and, and my thought went to, did they record time and dates the way we do today, you know, before the B.C. and A.D. era, like we look back at it? But also, the other part of that question is, we count time by the birth of Jesus. We, 
we have split the calendar, split the time period of that. So the birth of this of this man that we split time with, that you and I follow, that we read about in the book, there's something significant in in the culmination of all of that, and it's not just. Um, so the Christians can have the edge up or have the Bible or have the... It, there's something significant that happened. Yeah, so so before... Um, so let, let me look here. I was... Uh, so b- beforehand you had... Several different areas had different kinds of calendars. Um so with the Hebrew calendar, even the Hebrew calendar today is different than what our calendar uh, would be. So uh, let me see here. Uh, what is the year in the Hebrew calendar? Let me look this up right quick. Uh, so according to the Hebrew calendar, it would be year 5784. According to if I'm if I'm calculating that right, um, this year would be five seven eighty four. Now, so that is a lunar calendar. So their day begins at sunset uh, and then goes from like from six p.m. to six p.m. the next day. Uh, in in Roman times, around forty six B.C., uh, Roman Council Julius Caesar introduced um, the Julian calendar, and so. The problem with the Hebrew calendar is that it didn't it didn't necessarily so Earth goes through its yearly cycle around the sun every what 365 and a half days. It's it's not a perfect 365 days. So that's why you have to introduce a leap year. In fact, we're coming up on a leap year coming up next year. Every four years, you've got to have a leap year where you add an additional day to make up for that time. So, yeah, Julian, the Julian calendar was introduced in 46 BC. It was a reform of an earlier Roman calendar, uh, which is a solar calendar. And then uh, after that, you had in uh, 1582, October 1582, Pope Gregory the was 13th, I think, introduced a modification called the Gregorian calendar, which we use today, even now. That's the, that's the calendar we use today. So you were talking about going back to the time of Christ. They, they divvied up the years because now going back to the time of Christ you know Gregory's a pope but they modified that going back from BC to AD acknowledging around the time that Jesus was born it wasn't perfect though because they were trying to get where Jesus was born get the 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 calendar set where Jesus was born around 1 um, AD missed it by a few years but even still is a very fairly accurate system but uh, that's how that came about uh, the BC time before Christ uh, AD Anno Domini meaning the year of our Lord uh, which I can't stand the CE BCE yeah. things that do now I still go BC AD uh, it's still divided though that's still the divided. It's it's that's the thing that makes me giggle. It's like no matter what you're, no matter how much you try to move it around, you're still 
still marking time by A and B or one and two or yeah. it's it, it's yeah. it's marked around the time of Jesus because Jesus is the central figure. And listen, even if a person's not a Christian, they have to acknowledge, if you're going to be honest, that no one has had the impact on society and the world and of all of history as Jesus of Nazareth did. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, the basis why, behind you know, it. Those, I, I just... I, I, I know you're going to say the same thing or similar thing. I think it's funny that people say that Jesus never existed. But yet, what year are we in? And and what's the date? Um, you signed it on your on your on your times card for your for your for your business. See? Smoking uh, too much of that Colorado tobacco is the only thing I can say. <laughs> So, the probably one of the f- more fun ones. Um, I I kind of think anyway um, is the celebration of Hanukkah. What is the true story? And I know we're kind of running up on some time, but I'd really like to kind of spend some time on how Hanukkah is important and and. What's the true story of the celebration, and how how was it celebrated um, at the time of Jesus? I know we had um, podcasts and we've had articles on Jesus celebrating Hanukkah, um, but just kind of give us kind of an overview of that. Absolutely, and this came about to celebrate. Uh, this is a Jewish festival uh, that started in the second century BC. Uh, this was around the Maccabean Revolt uh, against the Seleucid Empire. So, so again, to, to, to spare you all the details, Israel had been invaded, and there was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. He was called uh, the Hammer. Uh, I, believe, I believe that's right, Ju- the, uh, Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. Uh, but he and his brothers and cohorts led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire, and they won. They freed their people. And the story is told that um, that on the 25th day of Kislev, according to the Hebrew calendar, uh, which is somewhere between November to late December, around this time period we're talking about, uh, that they they launched an attack, they, they took the temple, uh, but they only had enough oil to light the candle for one day, but miraculously, the oil lasted for eight days, allowing them enough light to to overcome. Um, and so, even now, uh, the festival is observed by lighting the candles of a candelabrum with nine branches. Now, this is different than the seven-branch temple menorah. So, this this nine-branched Hanukkah menorah again has nine branches compared to the temple menorah that has seven. And so what you do is uh, you, you light a unique candle called the Shamash, and each night an additional candle is lit by the Shamash. The Shamash is in the middle, and you, you light it from, I believe, left to right, if I'm not mistaken. And the tradition is that you give gifts for all eight nights, 
and each night the gift gets bigger and bigger. So you would probably the first night give what we would what we do at our house. We have small gifts we give in our stockings. First night would be the stocking. Second night would be something a little more substantial. And then it continues by the time you get to the eighth night, then that's when you have the main event. Uh, that's when you have the biggest gift of all that you're going to give uh, your, your loved one. And so it continues for eight nights. And the tradition is I've been told that uh, you need to allow the candles, all the candles, to burn completely out. So even if you light them, you, you continue leaving them lit until all of them are completely extinguished. Now they also have a fun little game. And in fact, it's interesting you ask this because I just just learned a little bit more about uh, this game. Uh, there's a little game they play called the dreidel, the dreidel game. And um, let, me, let me pull this up. So the the dreidel has four Hebrew letters inscribed on it, and it's a fun little game. You have you have these coins. Each person gets some coins, and so what you do is one person will spin the dreidel, and uh, so at the very first of it. Uh, so, so for instance, you, if you and I were playing, Curtis, we, we would both take a coin and we would put it in the middle. We'd put it in the pot. And then one of us would spin the dreidel. Well, on the dreidel, there are four different Hebrew letters. The noon, which is the Hebrew N. The gimel, which is the Hebrew G. The hay, uh, which is the Hebrew H. And the shin, which is an SH sounding letter. So you spin it around. If it lands on the N or the noon, then you don't do anything. Nothing happens. So, you you know, you just spin again. No one wins or loses. If you spin it again and it lands on the, um, the shin, I believe I'm telling you right, I think that uh, everybody has to add one more coin to the pot. If, if it's the hay symbol, then you each win half of it. Hey, you got one. But if it lands on the G, the gimel, that's the one you win with. So if it lands on the G, then then whoever whoever spins that and it lands on the G, you get everything in the pot. You get the whole, you win the whole thing, and you keep going on until till someone loses all their coins, and whoever has the most coins at the end wins the game. It's a fun game, and I've been wanting to get one of those. Uh, where did you get that, Curtis? <laughs> Well, even my teacher. <laughs> oh, you got it from your teacher? Okay. <laughs> Lynn, um, yeah, yeah, Pastor Lynn. Uh, well, did he make those, or yeah, did he buy them somewhere? These, uh, no, 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 no. No, they're actual real dreidels. Um, yeah. Well, so, that's cool. But yeah, you spin it like the top. Cool. If it lands on a G, you win everything in the pot. If it yeah. lands on the N, nothing happens. If it lands on the H, you, you have it up. Uh, both ways and if it lands on the shin everybody adds an extra coin to the pot and it continues till one person wins a majority <laughs> what a fun time what you got me time. wanting to go get a dreidel now I, mean, I was wanting to beforehand and now after seeing that I gotta go get one <laughs> I'm also wanting to get a menorah because by the way yeah. let me just say there's nothing wrong with Christians celebrating Hanukkah in fact, Jesus himself celebrated Hanukkah, so there's nothing. Hey, there's nothing wrong with doing both if you want to. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so 
along with that, you you called the the center um, candle. What what did you call it? What was it? What was it that you called? The it is called uh, the um, shamash candle. Okay. Um, I I understood it as called the servant candle. Well, it actually means that in Hebrew, it means attendant, the attendant candle, oh. or it can mean it can okay. mean servant candle. So, okay. so yes, shamash essentially means an attendant or servant. So, yeah. Hmm. And and what did what did Jesus come to do? To to, to do what? Serve, serve? humanity. <laughs> so you could make a case it that Jesus is together. the. You could say that Jesus is the Shamash. Oh man! Uh, yeah, yeah. But what a fun, what a fun time we've had with this. I, I, I just enjoy this kind of stuff. Um, and you know, uh, like you said, let's not take ourselves so seriously. Let's go out and enjoy uh, time with family and friends, and use this time. Um, as Christmas, it's an open opportunity, an open door for you to say, well, do you know the real meaning of that? Do you know, uh, do you know about the real St. Nicholas, the cause of that, why we celebrate it? Um, it's a great time, folks, to, to just be encouraged to know that when you go into certain stores, you're going to get to hear some wonderful Christmas music and probably see people that normally wouldn't um, have an open door or have an open uh, conversation about Jesus, and here's your opportunity. So Brian and I say get out, get involved, speak up, love people generously, and we will get to see you next year. From all of us at Bellator Christie, we wish you and your family a most blessed Christmas and a joyful new year.
You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. This podcast is protected under Creative Commons copyright. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to click subscribe and tell a friend. We'll see you back next time that we step into the arena of ideas.